assuming the logistics of doing M&A deals between these two countries resumes in relatively short or at least medium term order, we expect continued M&A deal flows and trade flows both from China into the U.S. and from the U.S. into China. I'm Jeff Jacobs, head of MA Execution and Cross Border at PJ Solomon. Thank you for listening to our podcast, PJ Solomon Presents. I'm joined by Peter Adams, a partner in the Beijing office at Vermilion Partners, part of Arnetixis MA Network. Vermilion offers a range of cross border and domestic investment banking services into and out of China, with a keen understanding of policies and government in China, enabling it to advise on transactions in highly regulated sectors. Before we begin, I wanted to give a bit of background. The last 10 years have been interesting as an evolution for cross-border M&A from China. In 2016, the U.S. government strengthened oversight of inbound Chinese M&A through CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment, into the U.S. Despite the increased political scrutiny, China appears to continue to have strong ambitions to pursue external growth through acquisitions, a topic we wrote about in P.J. Solomon's fourth volume of our cross-border bulletin published last year. Today, the geopolitical issues are complicated by the damage brought on by the recent coronavirus impacting the world's supply chains, hindering Chinese cross-border M&A. Recently, it seems that U.S.-China cross-border M&A may be in the early stages of recovery. We saw Popeye's opened its first location and expects to open up to 1,500 more. Costco opened its first store in Shanghai and is preparing to open more. Tesla built a factory in Shanghai and got a loan from the state-run Industrial and Commerce Bank of China to fund further expansion. Exxon is in talks to build a chemical plant in China, and Universal has been in talks to open a theme park in Beijing. Fundamentally, we're seeing U.S. corporations continue to bet that China's long-term growth potential outweighs the challenges stemming from recent geopolitical and health risks. So Peter, first off, thank you very much for joining us. To start, tell us about the current state of M&A in China. Have you seen your clients start to explore acquisitions post-COVID as recovery takes place? Jeff, thanks for having me on. And as usual, you sound as knowledgeable as any full-time practitioner of cross-border M&A in China. It has been a bit of a slow period, as you can imagine. Just in terms of travel logistics, it's basically impossible at the moment to have principal-to-principal meetings. On the other hand, China is, I think, fairly far ahead of the rest of the world in terms of coming out of the virus and is, from our perspective, fully back to work, with the exception of the fact that the borders effectively remain closed. So we have seen some big Chinese SOEs participating by remote in auctions of, for example, European assets. That's number one. And number two, we've also seen on the part of some of our foreign clients coming into China that they've relinquished operational control of their execution teams or handed that over to their teams here in China. So anecdotally, we have deals that really haven't missed a beat, both inbound and outbound. And we're fairly encouraged to see that activity is still going on at the moment. Yeah, I think likewise, we've seen in step with the rest of the world, people trying to execute deals remotely uh, and having more success than I think people would have anticipated otherwise, given the the lack of in-person meetings. So that seems to be fairly standard course these days. What sectors are attracting investment in China today, specifically for key sectors China may be focused on into the U.S.? So I guess there are two ways to answer this question. Number one, the sectors in which China has interest, not just in the U.S., by the way, but globally, are primarily technology, which is very sensitive around the world now, but also 
obviously in the U.S. with CFIUS, and secondarily, healthcare. So these have been prioritized by the state and any Chinese, particularly state-owned companies, but even private companies that want to do outbound acquisitions in these, these sectors will likely get state support, not just in the form of Chinese regulatory approvals, but sometimes also in the form of financing and sometimes actually be given a nudge to you know, act proactively to look for acquisitions in these sectors. You know, given the fact that technology in the U.S. deals into technology companies in the U.S. typically come under the scrutiny of CFIUS, as you mentioned uh, earlier, you know, Chinese companies have now figured out that they need to pursue deals in the U.S. that are not going to typically raise questions from U.S. regulators. If you look back a couple of years, you saw some really big deals being done out of China into the U.S. in sectors that were much less sensitive, including for example, for Smithfield, the, the pork producer, which was bought by a Chinese company, um, the GE Appliance division was bought in about 2016 by the Chinese company Hire. So the big deals, I think, in, in the past and in the future from China into the U.S. will be in sectors that are not necessarily those of primary interest to China. That's interesting. It, it, it does make sense. It is you know, challenging, I think, that the sectors that are of highest interest are also the ones that are most difficult to get transactions completed these days because of the government and regulatory issues and constraints. When you think about multinational corporations, how do you think that they are looking at global supply chains after the recent COVID crisis? In 2019, we saw U.S. tariffs increase the cost for many companies that manufacture in China. I know several of our clients began evaluating new manufacturing facilities in other parts of APAC or exploring the potential to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. And then at the start of the virus, restrictions on international travel, limitations on shipping, even further reinforced the benefits of having a domestic supply chain. But on the other hand, a diversified supply chain, especially outside the U.S., uh, has been a benefit for companies during coronavirus as other less affected nations have been earlier to recover. Peter, what's your view on the impact to global supply chains today? Yeah, it's a really good question and something that, you know, you hear everybody talking about. So completely agree. Diversification is sort of the first word that comes to mind in the minds of a lot of these multinational companies that have supply chains here in China on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, you hear some people say that in some cases, supply chains, if you were really to want to move them entirely out of China, depending on the industry, it would take 25 years. So for those uh, in industries or at companies where somehow it's easy to move supply chains in short order, you're right. You are seeing uh, investment, for example, in Southeast Asia. Vietnam specifically will be a big beneficiary, I think, in the end of this. You actually see among some of our clients and, and some of what's keeping us busy at the moment is some divestitures of multinational-owned assets in China as they do aim for diversification. But I think we're just at the start here. We haven't yet, anyway, seen the deluge that some people are predicting. You know, let's see how things play out. But I think this could be a, a very long-term trend in the short term. You know, things will probably remain somewhat similar to the way they are, I think, in most industries. I take your point. I know we've had conversations with clients, and frankly, it's an education. I think folks anticipate that moving supply chains is faster than it otherwise is, but 25 years is not an unrealistic timeline. And, and for many industries, the complexity around the supply chains and the manufacturing process 
really does take a long time if you wanted to move or pivot to another geography. They're fairly entrenched where they are. In our first ever edition of the Cross-Border Bulletin back in 2018, we wrote about China's Belt and Road Initiative, which at the time was driving outbound investment. There are economic investments in developing nations. They were used to build infrastructure and, and help garner influence in other regions. In an effort to increase its global ambitions, the Chinese government frequently offered favorable sovereign loan packages to emerging markets, which often, I think, after the global recession caused by the coronavirus pandemic, could potentially trigger a series of defaults. Peter, as the Chinese government works through these loans, what do you think will happen to the program going forward? And do you expect the Chinese government to make a push into these key emerging markets on a continued basis? Yeah, another great question. Yeah, I do. Belt and Road, although it's not mentioned so much by name anymore, is a signature policy of the Chinese government. And really, as you sort of mentioned in your question, it was originally meant to address Chinese surplus capacity in some of its own infrastructure industries. So they were looking essentially for work overseas, which is sort of how the name came to be and the policy started. But it's since been made flexible so that it can be adapted to sort of almost any policy or geography. And it really, you know, in the end at this point, refers probably just to Chinese outbound M&A in general into really some fairly developed countries, including, I'll just give you an example, even even Poland is considered a belt and road geography in China's view of the world. So, you know, despite the fact that uh, you now see stories about China potentially having overextended itself in some specific cases, which I think is what you're talking about when you're, when you're talking about default on loans, we don't see in the near term that this policy is, is going away. We think it will continue. It's interesting. Yeah, we have seen quite large numbers estimated about the amount of lending that's gone into other regions over the last several years. But I think it's an initiative. I would agree with you that it's here to stay. Maybe it makes sense to actually look back, not just in terms of Belt and Road, but in terms of Chinese outbound acquisition history. Chinese outbound acquisitions didn't really become sort of a formidable thing, if you will, until only five or six years ago. This didn't necessarily have at the time to do with the Belt and Road Initiative exclusively. What happened was a sort of incredible confluence of events where, number one, the Chinese state, whether it was through Belt and Road or just general policy, wanted to see its companies going out into the rest of the world and buying foreign companies. The Chinese foreign investment stock as a percentage of Chinese GDP is extremely low compared to more developed countries. So China, number one, had a lot of catching up to do. And number two, had some interest in specific sectors. But what you saw was sort of cheap financing for everybody. And you saw deals really in any sector, including some that were not priority for the state. Airline companies doing deals for technology companies. You saw investments into sports clubs, for example, one of which we did, West Bromwich Albion, which was the first ever takeover by a Chinese company of, a, of an English Premier League football, as they call it in that country team. But that was sort of right around the time that Belt and Road was becoming a stated policy. What has happened since then is Number one, the Chinese regulators were concerned by the end of 2016 already at the rate of capital outflow, and they moved very quickly to establish what's now referred to as currency controls, whereby if you are now a Chinese acquirer who wants to go out, you have to make sure you get 
Chinese regulatory approval to do it, which is not nearly as easy to come by as it used to be. And that's not to say that there won't be any activity. It's simply that the state wants to make sure that the activity that there is, is in the sectors of high priority, whether it, for example, is technology or healthcare, as we just talked about. So Belt and Road is part of that. Belt and Road is, you know, originally, as as we talked about, geography driven. But again, deals for Belt and Road in Belt and Road geographies, particularly in infrastructure, were supported back then and continue to be supported now by the state. What's interesting is we've also seen Chinese investment be a big driver of U.S. venture capital flow. You know, there was a number of record years. It seems that DC investments in the U.S. from China finally slowed, you know, in part due to coronavirus. But the activity has been increasing as recently as in March. Chinese firms, I think, in nearly 70 VC deals, the highest since mid-December. What are you seeing in terms of activity in the region related to, to some of these early stage investments? I can tell you anecdotally that we know business people in China who can very easily raise venture capital money because they have very good uh, VC track records, including in the West, and that some of those people who were originally raising funds for investment in the U.S. have now turned to raising funds for investment in China because a lot of these funds obviously focus on technology and those deals have become much harder to do in in the U.S. I'm encouraged to hear from you that there is so good flow into the U.S. I can only imagine that it's into, again, less sensitive sectors. And let's see how it plays out. So the U.S. recently claimed that Hong Kong is no longer autonomous from China. This in response to Beijing's plan to impose a national security law on the territory. So let's talk about the practical implications for business and finance. For the U.S. and the rest of the world, Hong Kong has always been a conduit for U.S. investment in China. In fact, Hong Kong channels about 60% of foreign direct investment and half the capital flow raised through Chinese IPOs into China. Furthermore, just under 10% of China's exports came to the U.S. through Hong Kong. And the currency is obviously pegged to the dollar, acting as a bridge between China and the global capital markets. But that said, you know, lately Chinese leaders have reacted negatively to what is perceived as the U.S. quote, crossing a red line and interfering in matters related to national security laws in Hong Kong. Do you expect that the increased political tension could negatively impact either cross-border trade or, you know, more relevant to our conversation, M&A going forward? Probably not in the short term, is our view. So finance in Hong Kong rests on the rule of law and the freedom of capital exchange, and those fundamentals have not yet been affected, politics aside. So in our view, it will still remain a major offshore financial center. To answer your question about how it might affect M&A to or from Hong Kong, I was on a call recently where somebody asked whether Sifius is now going to take a closer look at deals from Hong Kong into the U.S., and the answer from the lawyers on the call was the fact is that Sifius has always taken a very close look at deals from Hong Kong simply because it's really part of China. So politics and emotion aside, our sense is that in the short term, there's not likely to be a huge effect on on cross-border business. Last year... Beijing erased ownership restrictions on foreign groups' investment in China, some of the ownership restrictions. Have you seen U.S. companies consolidating JVs in China as a result? For example, we saw ExxonMobil and Tesla and others build wholly-owned plants. Which industries do you think are poised for consolidation today? This is a very timely question. One of the real positives, we think, in the U.S.-China relationship is the fact that 
China a few years ago committed to erasing, as you say, or releasing some of the restrictions on foreign ownership in specific sectors in China, the financial sector and the automotive sector. So in the financial sector, depending on whether you work, for example, a securities company like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, who wanted to have an operation here in China, where the limitation was, was effectively very low on the order of probably a third of your JV could be owned by you, the foreign company, and the other two thirds needed to be owned by uh, your Chinese partner. And secondly, in automotive, which famously has been li- limited to 50% foreign ownership for a very long time. So the answer is, you know, given that these restrictions have now just this year come off, particularly in, on financial services in the automotive industry, yes, you are seeing, I think you were talking just now about wholly owned entities being established, and I think that will be a trend. But we're also seeing the, some of the existing joint ventures, whether it's in securities or asset management, for example, we're seeing deals generated by originally the minority foreign JV partners, Goldman, and I think Morgan Stanley have recently taken majority stakes in their securities JVs. I think JP Morgan has set up a 100% owned futures company. I think JP Morgan Asset Management has now acquired a majority stake in its uh, asset management company in China. Previously, the, the cap on that was 49%. I think that's gone up to 51% this year. In short order, will be completely released, where you will see foreign companies able to own 100% of their asset management companies in China. In the automotive sector, BMW went from 50% to 75% in its JV with Brilliance Automotive in 2018. By the way, Brilliance was one of the very first Chinese, speaking of U.S. capital markets, was one of the very first Chinese companies ever to list in the U.S. back in the mid-90s. Uh, so here we are full circle with BMW now raising its stake in its JV here with Brilliance. And I think that's going to be, you know, a trend in automotive. Tesla, as you know, established a 100% Tesla-owned factory in China. That, by the way, was a little bit of a special circumstance because there was a separate set of rules that, that covered electric vehicles that didn't apply to traditional automotive. But yeah, those are the two sectors where we see activity as a result of easing Chinese restrictions on foreign investment. I think it's an incredibly interesting development and certainly eliminating some of those restrictions alleviates some of the forced technology transfer concerns for some of these companies. Let's talk about access to capital for Chinese corporations and how your clients are thinking about access to U.S. capital markets. We know in May 2020, the U.S. Senate passed legislation known as the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act it required U.S. listed companies to comply with U.S. information sharing, regulatory and audit standards. Interestingly, some of these standards may be, in, in fact, in breach of Chinese law, but failure to comply would lead to Chinese companies being delisted in the U.S. Do you see the new legislation impacting your clients or their access to capital? And do you anticipate that selected Chinese companies may start to seek alternative country listings, either in Europe or even potentially domestically in China? Another very good and timely question. So, you know, our sense is that for the most part, Chinese companies have stopped thinking about access to, for example, U.S. capital markets. Uh, China itself is not short of capital, and many companies get much better valuations domestically. And, for example, in Hong Kong, if they're able to list there, the one sector, again, which still has interest in listing in, in the U.S., 
uh, is the technology sector. And that's a function of the fact that to get listed domestically in Shanghai or Shenzhen or in Hong Kong, you need to have a track record of profitability, which some technology companies don't have, which is what's driven them in the past to NASDAQ. But the trend there is going to be is there will be sort of a relaxation of at least some of the profitability standards in favor of, for example, revenue standards on these exchanges that will allow these Chinese companies to list closer to home. Lastly, let's talk about technology. Technology has been a critical industry for both the U.S. and China. We've hit on some of the points already. Not all investments have gone without scrutiny. But what's your view globally on if there will continue to be technology cross-border M&A going forward? And I know you suggested that there are certain pockets that may be more likely to experience volume or a flow of deals versus others. But, you know, are there any ones that we think could be areas to focus on or areas to watch in the near future? You know, you have the world's two largest economies in, in the U.S. and China, and technology investment is not going to be stymied entirely. Yes, there will be continued technology M&A, and whether it happens earlier stage of the VC level, like we were talking about just a minute ago, or sort of around the fringes of more critical technology, such that it's not subject to the kind of scrutiny that more critical technology deals have been more recently. That's perhaps the trend there. Yeah. And certainly we've seen an appetite and eagerness to expand and invest in technology globally. I mean, not just within in China specifically, but we saw Facebook invest in geo in India. We see the race to 5G and everyone across the world focused on that. So I think there is a continued interest and eagerness from companies to expand, and I expect we'll see it between the U.S. and China as well. Thank you again to Peter Adams from Vermillion Partners for joining us on this podcast. I'm Jeff Jacobs from PJ Solomon. Thank you for listening to PJ Solomon Presents. We hope you found this helpful. For more information, please visit pjsolomon.com.